Good morning. Sorry I missed the announcements. I was out there guilting people into coming into class. <laughs> so much fun. How are you? Doing well? I'm glad you're here. Would you check and make sure that your cell phone is off, please? And um, thank you to Lauren and, and Rodney and John and, and Tim. Lauren particularly got here early to help with a little video that you're going to see in uh, a few minutes. So um, let's begin as we do. We're going to get sort of a different beginning today, but just take a deep breath and be here. Get over the grief of, last, of yesterday's loss. And we take our guidance from Jesus, who, as far as we know, excluded everyone, no one. So no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are celebrated here. I have two special announcements that I want to make today. First of all, there is a free lunch. Um, I want to invite you to join me and Melinda Owens. Uh, you're going to meet Melinda if you don't know her already. Melinda Melinda's uh, Minister of Pastoral Care for St. Paul's. I really, really, really like her. She is just, just so wonderful and funny and everything. We meet about once a month to talk about things about the church and pastoral care and stuff like that and came up with the idea that beginning in March, I'm going to invite whoever would like to, by signing these sheets, to join us probably on a Thursday, beginning in March, for an hour, hour and a half. I'm going to invite people from Ordinary Life, and Melinda's going to invite people from who don't come to Ordinary Life, and we're going to meet for lunch, and um, lunch is on us. You'll have your choice when Sarah contacts you about what kind of lunch you want. And uh, it will be an opportunity for me and Melinda to introduce ourselves to people who otherwise would not see us and for you to get to know a broader community of people. So if you are willing, able to attend one of these lunches, if you will put your name and your cell phone number down, then we'll call you. This will start in March, okay? It, it, it's going be a good thing to do. Hmm? Uh, they got a pen. The one fell on the floor, but they have, they have one. Okay. So that'd be fun, fun thing to do. Uh, the second announcement I have has to do with next Sunday. The um, Rise um, for Hunger program that we're doing. We will not meet like this here next Sunday. However, I encourage you to come back and help St. Paul's reach a goal. Next Sunday we will celebrate St. Paul's anniversary. Help St. Paul's reach a goal of having 300 volunteers to fix lunches. 
for the Rise Up for Hunger campaign. If you do that, you have to register because that's what their program requires. You can register on the St. Paul's website. Child care is provided, although if you have children and grandchildren up to the age of five, five and above, they can come and participate in this program. During this time, actually starting at 10 o'clock next Sunday and going all the way through the rest of the afternoon, the goal is to do something like 80,000 lunches, something with ridiculously high number. So um, we need people to come and volunteer for that. But you, you can just show up, but it would be helpful if you want lunch, which is again free, there is a free lunch, you have to go to the St. Paul's website and register. We don't have 300 volunteers yet. We have a little over 200 as of this morning. So this class could kick it over, 300, if you would volunteer, okay? I, will, I hope you will do that. And again, you'll get your choice of um, lunch when you do that. Everybody's curious about this. Not a magic trick. So may grace be in our heads and in our thinking. May grace be in our eyes and in our seeing. May grace be in our ears and in our hearing. May grace be in my mouth and in my speaking today. And may grace be in our hearts and in our understanding. <clears throat> may grace be in our ends and at our departing. So I've got this theme that I'm really excited about pursuing this year. And it's called... Um, living in the sacred stream. And though I want to pay very close attention to our chaotic culture and our evolving cosmos, as well as the shadow side of our existence that seems in control of so much, yet ironically isn't because we are totally responsible for everything, that's the shadow of the unconscious that we'll give in. I want during this process to be guided by the teachings of our tradition, before the tradition, before the church got hold of the tradition. <clears throat> that is the longest opening sentence of any class I have ever written. So, <clears throat> I want to pay close attention to our chaotic culture and the evolving cosmos in which we live, as well as the shadow side of our existence that seems to be in control of so much, and yet we are in control because we're totally responsible for the context and our response to how we live. And at the same time, I want to pay attention to the teachings of our tradition before our tradition got corrupted by the church. That's it. Now, we'll drift from one side of this path to the other, I'm sure. States of consciousness and unconsciousness and talk about the culture. But um, our way is going to be set by following the narrative of Jesus and the teachings about Jesus, okay? 
Now, <clears throat> as far as I know, we have eight accounts, narratives of the, of the life of Jesus. If you count the Jefferson Bible, we have eight. I don't really count the Jefferson Bible, so we have seven. They're all metaphorical, especially John is very, very metaphorical, not historic at all. But every one of these begins with the story, after a brief thing about the birth of Jesus, which I'm going to hold off on, they all begin with Jesus having a relationship with John the Baptist. And the image that came to my mind when I went back to read Tolstoy and um, Stephen Mitchell was an image that I got from Bruce Chilton about the baptism of Jesus. One of the primary messages of Jesus, indeed I think you could con condense most of the Jesus narrative to the teaching that if you have faith in your true identity, that will bring you wholeness. And that's what Jesus did with people. He saw them for who they truly were. Now that as this message flowed forward, it got polluted by the church. The church said, if you believe what we tell you about Jesus, then you'll be whole. No, moved away from your identity. Or if you belong to our group, or if you do these rituals, or if you give us this money, then. But that's not the way Jesus taught. Now, where did Jesus come up with this central message? Why? It's a pretty racy story, actually. So, should get our Purian interest. Rabbi Chilton, uh, Rabbi Jesus by Bruce Chilton. Uh, Chilton is a member of the Jesus Seminar. Generally around Easter and uh, Christmas when the History Channel or PBS has these stories about religious history, one of the people that they will use as a, an authority is Bruce Chilton. He's a true, true scholar. Chilton says that likely Jesus left home when he was 12. Or thereabout. The culture at the time of Jesus, young girls were getting pregnant at 12, 13, 14 years old. Um, marriages were arranged tribally, and um, even in our culture, uh, young men are pronounced, you are a man at their bar mitzvah when they're 12. So the theory is that Jesus left home and joined John the Baptist when he was around 12. Most of the Jesus narratives tell the story, again, this is metaphorical, about the time when Jesus was 12, his family went to Jerusalem for a festival Passover at the temple. And because of the nature of his birth, which I'm setting aside for right now, Jesus was not admitted to participate in the rituals of the temple. He was not considered a proper Jew. He was an outcast. Don't know if you've ever felt like an outcast, but 
how that might shape anything you said after that would be significant. So the baptismal pools around the temple were many. They were deep. And they were used for regular ritual cleaning. They could hold several men at once. There were separate pools for women. And the men would go down under the water and come back up, down and come back up, down and come back up. Specified number of times. Want to guess the number? Huh? Seven. Seven. You know the story of Naaman being healed by leprosy in the uh, Hebrew scriptures. So he goes to the river and it be immersed seven times. So men would go up and down. Get a picture of that because this is not baptism as we know baptism. Two drops on your head, that's it, forever. They, over and over and over. And because there were many ways <clears throat> of becoming ritually unclean, you would do these rituals frequently, over and over. So at any rate, Jesus breaks with his home community. Another thing he teaches to others later, and he goes off and joins with John the Baptist. And they practice this ritual baptism over and over and over again. And if you want to read about that, Rabbi Chilton's book, I mean, Rabbi Jesus by Chilton reads like a novel. It's really good reading. I didn't notice until preparing for today that the image of Jesus on the cover of Rabbi Chilton's book is Rembrandt's painting that I've become so smitten with since finding it. So this baptism was self-administered, up and down, up and down, up and down, over and over and over. And that's where I got the idea of splash. You can hear it. You can almost hear it, splash, splash, over and over. And when I mentioned this line to Holly, she said, you mean splash like in the movie? And I said, like the old person I am, what movie? <clears throat> I had not seen the movie. I'm sure many of you have. I've now seen it. It was released in 1984. It was the first release by an offshoot of Disney because Disney wanted to produce this kind of racy film but didn't want the Disney name attached to it. So they did it. Daryl Hannah won an Oscar for her role in Splash. And <clears throat> I understand that after the movie, many little girls wanted to be mermaids and they have long hair like Daryl Hannah. Tom Hanks looks like an adolescent. He was 25 when the movie was made. By the way, an Oscar was given best screenplay for Splash. If you can believe it, that happened. Um, John Candy, is that his name? Plays uh, Alan Bauer's brother. Candy is absolutely gross in the film. Even as a little kid, he would be on, uh, you know, the, the, the story starts, they're on this boat with their family going to Cape Cod. <clears throat> John Candy's character will throw coins on the boat deck so he can get down and pick them up and look up ladies' dresses. <laughs> Clever guy. But Alan sees something under the surface of the water and he jumps in. And he has the ability to breathe underwater. 
Now, some of you have had dreams like that, right? You can dream underwater. He sees this young girl his age, and they have this connection. However, somebody on the boat, his family, somebody sees him, and they jump in the water and pull him back. To me, this is a, I'm a screen writer, never intended this, but this is a metaphor for the first half of life. We get attracted to something in the unconscious, and our tribe pulls us back. Right. Twenty years later, Alan is depressed. He's lonely. He decides to revisit Cape Cod, and he gets into a most unworthy motorboat with a most unworthy guy who's going to ferry him across to the Cape. The boat stops. The guy jumps out of the boat and is going to swim to shore to get another boat. Alan gets impatient. He decides that he can start the boat. He pulls on the boat rope, falls overboard, is knocked unconscious, and goes to the bottom. His wallet drops onto the coral reef below. And eventually he wakes up on the beach in the presence of a young woman who is unable to talk to him. But she kisses him. And then she dives back into the water and she's transformed into a mermaid where she finds his wallet <clears throat> and using that information and the fact that she has six days to live as a human on the planet while the moon is in certain fates. She gets out of the water in Manhattan. You've got to see it. It's pretty racy. And um, she manages to find Alan in Manhattan. Um, she doesn't have a name, so walking down Madison Avenue, Alan Bauer gives her a name. Madison is your name, but one day while he's at work, she puts on one of his suits and she goes to a um, big department store, Bloomingdale's, I believe it is, and she gets a new outfit using his cards, I'm sure, and she ends up in the television department, and that's where she learns English by watching television all day long. She learns English. Well, finally, Ellen comes home from work, realizes she's gone, asks the doorman, where is that girl? And he's told Bloomingdale, so he rushes off to Bloomingdale, and he goes into the TV department and he finds her. <clears throat> For those of you who haven't seen it, here's the scene. Say in your language. Alright. My name is. Again. The, the screenwriter never intended that I'm reading all this into this movie, but there's another metaphor. When we meet that from the unconscious, it speaks a different language. And there has to be some cooperation before we learn. First half of life chores are very different from the second half. So the first half of life, we build a strong ego to serve as a container for the work that we will do the rest of our lives. Mm -hmm. Container that will 
hold um, our identity so that we don't gain our identity or lose our identity through anything else, through any of the various worlds we live in. Another teaching of Jesus, learn to be in the world but not of it. Now the church even put a spin on that to say this world is not our home. We're just a passing through. Our treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. You know that story. Robert Johnson is the one who helped me understand that we have to learn to be in the world, not of the world. In that, So splash. So as you know, I read Carl Jung when I was in graduate school. As a matter of fact, it was a passage in Jung that led to my being here. But all that I read, that was all head knowledge, information. It wasn't until about 30 years ago when I decided to pursue Jungian analytic work that I discovered experientially what Jung had meant about discovering the unconscious and, and sharing the work that he did, especially dream work. And in the very first meeting that I had with a man I was working with, he said rather matter-of-factly, as if he was commenting on the weather, he said, you're not here by accident. Jung had coined a word for this called synchronicity, which describes a meaningful coincidence that happens when an inner psychological state of mind matches an outer reality. Synchronicity. The man I was working with is right. I look back on how I got to him. Uh, again, Robert Johnson calls it the golden threads that led to where you are. And when I look at why it was I was in that guy's office, it now seems miraculous. And the outcome seems miraculous as well. You're not sitting in this class today by accident. There are golden threads that have led you here. And I hope the outcome is just as life-changing. The day <clears throat> after we uh, watched Splash, I picked up a copy of a journal I take. This is just a week, just the last week. The journal um, I'm, I was reading, I picked up, was November of last year, because you can see I'm behind in my reading. Um, <clears throat> It's a journal, it's one I've been taking for 50 years. It's got the most pretentious title, The Christian Century. That's so arrogant. Christian Century started being published around 1900, I'm guessing, 1901, somewhere like that. It was the result of the breakout of the fundamentalist struggle and the modernist struggle that took place about that time. And the Christian Century was going to be a way to combat, combat that, that work. It, 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 this, this journal conveyed, and I think still does, the liberal optimism of the time. So each month, the magazine has a feature where essays that have been written and submitted by readers are published. And these essays are in response to a prompt that comes from the writings of Frederick Beekner. And I cannot explain how it felt 
the day after watching this film and having hit on this metaphor of splash, to have picked up the Christian Century and opened it to the reader's essays, which were entitled Splash. I have not read the essays because I did not want them to influence what I was going to say today. I've been a huge fan of Frederick Beekner's for decades. He died about two years ago. I want to read you the prompt. An old silent pond. Into the pond a frog jumps. Splash. Silence again. Now this is Beekner, not me. It is perhaps the best known of all Japanese haiku. No subject could be more hum humdrum. No language could be more pedestrian. Basho, the poet, makes no comment on what he's describing. He implies no meaning, message, or metaphor. He simply invites our attention to no more and no less than just this. The old pond in its watery stillness, the kaplunk of the frog, the gradual return to stillness. Splash. Now there's another word in addition to the word synchronicity that I would like for you to know and embrace. Uh, you've heard it before. It's akin to synchronicity, but it's richer, deeper, more complex, and that's the word entangled. Entanglement is an affirmation that God is in everything and everything is in God. Now, the word that you used for this was pantheism. So, if you get close to the spring of the origins of the teachings of Jesus and go back and read the narratives in light of this, you can see this was Jesus' belief. God is in everything. Everything is in God. Consider the lilies of the field, the birds of the air, all of that. Now, developing Christian doctrine backed away from this, polluting the stream. And the reason that they did this backing away was because they wanted to emphasize the exclusive and zenith nature of Jesus and the religion they were developing around him. That makes sense? So <clears throat> I stopped referring to myself as an evangelical Christian about 50 years ago. Because the, well, the word evangelical got co-opted by fundamentalists. Actually, the word evangelical is a really good word. It simply means good news. The first four writings in the Christian collection are called Gospels. The word Gospel is a transliteration of the word evangel, evangelistic. I'm still an evangelical in the sense that I believe that what happens right here is good stuff and that it makes sense to share that with other people. Hey, there's another way to look at things. There's another way to think. That's good news. There are more loving, more honest, more liberating ways of looking at what is. 
So this past week, the news reports informed us that Donald Trump swept the Iowa caucuses, and that was primarily because he had the support of evangelical Christians. Now, I don't know what your definition of a Christian is, but in this case, the term Christian has nothing to do with the teachings of Jesus. The fact is that, used as used in that news report and other places where the term evangelical Christian is used, it refers not to religious convictions, but to one's political convictions, not religious. I don't think that Jesus I have come to know would look at those he calls, they, who call themselves evangelical Christians and that he would say, you got it. This is exactly what I had in mind. Donald and I are so much alike. It's what I hoped humanity would look like. Now, as you've heard me say before, I think much of the crisis in our country is the direct result of both spiritual and religious illiteracy. Religious literacy has to do with factual knowledge and information about one's religion. Whatever that religion is, you should know about where it came from, how it got started, why it's shaped the way it is. Why do Protestants have over 2,000 different denominations? True. Why did the Methodists split last year? What's all that about? Spiritual literacy has to do with the perennial values that are common to all religious traditions, and those would be love, honesty, freedom, justice, and humility. We, in this culture, suffer from a lack of religious literacy and spiritual literacy. So as we pursue work on clarifying or purifying or getting as close as possible to the source of the spring of the Jesus narrative, there are two sources that I'm going to be primarily looking at. The Gospel According to Jesus by Stephen Mitchell and the Leo Tolstoy one. Those are the two guides I will be using mostly. Tolstoy's The Gospel in Brief begins with a very brief paragraph having to do with the birth of Jesus. As I said, we're going to get back to that when we get to Jesus' emphasis on forgiveness and his emphasis on God as Father. So I'll put that aside for just a minute. This is the way Stephen Mitchell's work begins. This is the book of the good news, Evangel, that Jesus of Nazareth proclaimed. Is that going? John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of renewal for the forgiveness of sins. And John was clothed in camel's hair with a belt of animal hide around his waist. And he ate locust and wild honey. And people from all of Judea went out to him and many people from Jerusalem. And they were baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins. And at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. In Tolstoy's work after um, 
a brief, like, two-sentence thing about the birth of Jesus. This is a story about Jesus with his parents going to Jerusalem. After they had spent several days in Jerusalem, the family heads home, and having traveled for several days, they notice that Jesus is not with them, and when this became known, they were reported to CPS for parental neglect. No, no, no. They went to find him. And according to the story, they were told, I must be about my father's business. Okay. So, um, children in this book that I just can't go on enough about, um, says several things happened at this juncture in the life of Jesus. First, he was smitten, as anyone would have been, by the beauty, grandeur, immensity of the temple in Jerusalem. It had not yet been destroyed. And he would have been impressed by the many large pools of water that were around, how they were being used. And he would be stung by the fact that he couldn't get them. He was the son of an unwed mother. Now, there's stronger words for that, even in Judaism. Stephen Mitchell, Chilton, John Dominic Crossan, Marcus Borg, a host of other Jesus scholars say <clears throat> that this is what caused Jesus to have the emphasis in his teaching that he did, as I said, about forgiveness and about Father. He had a lot of forgiving to do, and he had a profound father wound. So Chilton says it was likely at this time, get the image in and out of water, in and out of water, in and out of water, that Jesus left his family and joined up with the followers of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a kind of wild man who was also in the prophetic tradition of Judaism. So he railed against the corruption of the Jewish political system. He railed against the corruption of the Jewish religious system. Those religious people went along with the political system because it's the way they survived. You know the dictum, you go along to get along, right? So there have been many, many theories about where was Jesus between age 12 and 30? One... Um, very sweet myth is that he worked with his father, Joseph, in the carpenter shop and made furniture. Somebody this week asked me if I thought it was credible that uh, Jesus went to India and learned from uh, Hindus. And I said, no, I don't think so. It's a nice theory, but if that had been the case, Paul would have mentioned it. Because Paul was intent on merchandising for the religious the Jesus religion. Paul started all this stuff. He was marketing Jesus. So Jesus didn't go to India. A couple of a couple of weeks ago, I could not believe this. Dr. McDonald mentioned in his sermon a book, Lamb, The Gospel According to Biff, Christ's Childhood Powell by Christopher Moore. How many of you have read this book? Oh, bless your hearts, the rest of you haven't? He's one of the funniest, most sacrilegious, 
If you read it, just be prepared. Biff is a really randy guy. And Jesus, one time, Biff is going out on one of his assignations, and Jesus says to uh, Biff, I don't think you ought to be doing that. And Biff says, oh, it's okay. It's in the scripture. And Jesus said, really? Where is that? I've studied the Torah. And Biff says, oh, it's in 1 Dalmatians 13.2. <laughs> it's a funny book. Jesus was a, uh, was a Jewish mystic in the prophetic tradition of his religion. And you get that? Because you're going to hear that from me time and time and time again. Jesus was a Jewish mystic. Jewish mystic in the prophetic tradition of his religion. Got that? This is important. Now, why is that important? Because prophets offend us and mystics scare us. That's just simple. And we'll make it through that barrier if we can just acknowledge that this is the way it is for most of us. Say to somebody, oh, he's a mystic. Oh, really? He's a little too prophetic for me. So the best scholarship that I can find tells me that during what's called the missing years, Jesus was hanging out with this group that John the Baptist headed. He learned so much there. Keep on the move. I don't have a place to lay my head. Foxes do, but I don't. I don't have anything to eat. Ask of those who will give to you. If they don't give it, get out of there and go someplace else. Over and over, you can just imagine how these lessons begin to develop during this period of time. So the, 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 the training that Jesus got, the practices that he saw, among other things, these repeated immersions, induced this ritual ecstasy that led to his transformation. Now, if this sounds weird to you, find me a culture where it doesn't exist. Whirling dervishes in Sufism. Religious ecstasy caused by dance. Native American circle dances that we kind of made fun of, rain dances. I have a cartoon I was going to show, but I didn't. Native Americans involved in a rain dance with only one bringing an umbrella. <laughs> Go look at some of the nature channels about tribes in Africa and other places. Dances, 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 ecstatic dances. So that's the image that led for me to having Splash. So in whatever else occurred during this time, Jesus claimed his identity. And it's in both Mitchell and Tolstoy as well as Matthew that immediately after this experience with John, which we know now wasn't just one time, but over and over and over and over, uh, that <clears throat> Jesus was driven into the wilderness for 40 days. Again, this is a parable created by the early church, and it's what we will do, not next Sunday, because we'll be making lunches, but the Sunday after that, we'll get into that parable about the 40, day, 40 days. You okay? You with this? <clears throat> it's a lot to take in. This is not your usual Sunday school class, what you usually hear. I'm a great lover of Zen teaching stories. I've got... Lots of books with them. 
And I want to tell you one that I've um, told before in here, but I told it five years ago. And most of you cannot remember what you had for breakfast five days ago. So I think I'm safe repeating it. So there were a group of devotees who invited a master to come to teach them. Now in these stories, I learned this from Robert, uh, in these stories, the master comes from a far off place. Doesn't mean, don't take that literally, a master comes from a world that we're not familiar with into our world and brings some of that world with him. Okay. And <clears throat> the master told them that they must strive to acquire freedom from the strong attractions, strong reactions to daily life. They must develop an attitude of habitual reverence. They must have a regular practice or a method of meditation, which he explained to them in detail. And the object of all of this was to realize the one divine life pervading everything. This you could take a picture of as your curriculum for daily practice. And he said to them, in the end, you must come to this realization, not only in your meditation, but in your daily life. Spiritual practice is like practicing a piano. It, we practice in order to play. We have a spiritual practice so that we can go into the world with this. He said the whole process is like filling a sieve or strainer with water. And then he left. Well, just like after a lot of these classes, they were frustrated, didn't know what he meant, didn't get much out of that. One of them said, you know, that's as good as telling us we'll never be able to do it. Filling a strainer with water, that's nonsense. That's what happens to me now. I go to hear a teaching. I pray. I read one of the holy books. I help the nature, the neighbors of their children. I offer the merit to God. I feel uplifted for a little while. My character improves for a bit. I don't get so impatient. I don't gossip so much. But, you know, after a while it drops off. He's right, it's just like putting water in a strainer. And now he's telling us that's all we shall ever be able to do. They pondered on this image without getting anything out of it. Some, some thought he was telling them that people like them could only expect some temporary lift. Some thought he was making fun of them. Some thought he was telling them that there was something fundamentally wrong with their ideas. Others thought that maybe he was referring to something in the scripture that they didn't know, so they went and studied. But in the end, it just kind of went away. Except for one woman. It's a metaphor. Again, who comes out of the water and splash? A woman. A woman in the stories, almost always, Sophia, wisdom, that says there's got to be more to it than this. So she goes into the foreign country and talks to the master about what in the world did you mean? Filling a sieve with water. So he gave her a cup 
And he gave her a strainer and he said, show me how you do it. So she bent down, they went down to the water and she bent down and she took a cup of water and she poured it into the sieve like that. And he said to her, as long as you stand on the shore of ego and try to fill the sieve like that, that's the way your spiritual practice will go. That's not the way to fill a strainer with water. And she said, well, how do I do it? He said, well, give it to me. And he took it and he threw it out into the water. And it floated there, splash, on the surface of the water. And then it went down. He said, now it's full of water. And that's where you do spiritual practice. Not ladling cupfuls in and judging it. I did or didn't get something out of it. You throw yourself in. Splash. Now, if you've not seen the movie Splash, I hope you do. It's fun. It's well done. Even I mean, it's well done for 1985 standards. But to me, it is so much more. It's such a beautiful metaphor. So Alan is eight when he sees something in the water that attracts him. He jumps in, has this ability to breathe underwater. He encounters this feminine energy. He's in trance, but his tribe pulls him back, inserts him into, as we love to put it, the real world. you got to live in a real world. But years pass. He's unsatisfied. He's unfulfilled. So he goes back to the cave, and once again, he's thrown into the water. He can't swim, but in the process, he drops his wallet where it is retrieved by the same now grown-up feminine figure. Now, wallets and dreams, purses and dreams, bags, suitcases are representations of our identity. It's where we keep our driver's license, where we keep our ability to take care of ourselves, your credit card, sometimes money. So the mermaid is smitten with Alan. And as he is with her. And so she manages to transform into this human for these six magical days. They fall madly in love. Now, in the from the very beginning, you know this is not going to work out. <laughs> because she's a mermaid. She wants to go home. But she agrees with Alan because she loves him so much that she will stay in his world. She'll give up her identity and stay here. But there's a problem. Now people know who she is. And they want to capture her and do what you do in biology to a frog. Right? Metaphor. We've wanted to capture the light and put it where we're in control of it. This is what we believe and so much you. But Alan is too in love with her for this to happen now. So he manages by means of a car chase that is almost as good as the one in the French Connection. Those of you who've seen the movie know. To get her back to this pier where she can jump in the water and be saved. And they're surrounded by helicopters coming, cop cars coming, and they have this cheerful, hard goodbye. 
And just as she is about to be apprehended, she jumps in off the pier into the ocean and is transformed back into the mermaid she is and she swims away. And there is Alan left standing on the pier. The cops are coming for him too because he's broken all sorts of laws to get to be with her. That's another metaphor. If you're going to gain the truth, you've got to break a few rules. So this creature from the deep had introduced him to his true self. What was it Jesus said? If you see your true identity, you will be whole. She'd seen it in him. He'd seen it because she'd seen it. So the get a job, be, be realistic world was coming after him. Attention bills. What would Alan do? He dives into the water, touched by this feminine creature. He develops the ability to breathe underwater, and they swim off to another life in another world. It's a great metaphor. Now, those of you who are five, six, and sevens on the Enneagram, We'll probably leave here and go on the Enneagram, go on the Google and try to figure out how in the world did they manage those breathing underwater scenes. That's okay. It's fascinating to read about. But see the movie as a metaphor. We're in this in-between space, standing on the dock. And we need a myth that we don't have yet. Jesus, I'm in that tradition. His teaching established the right direction for the growth in consciousness. Jesus never meant to start a new religion, much less an institution. And frankly, it's tricky to stand in an institution he didn't mean to start and do teachings that are contrary to what he did teach. The church cut off growth in Christ consciousness by getting involved in petty fights about doctrinal matters. That's a fact. It continues. Um, the recent heartbreaking rift in the Methodist Church has trivialized both sides of the debate. But it just, just it makes it, what you throw up your hands and scream. Thank God there's a place like this, I think. So Jesus entered into a, a sacred consciousness that allowed him, actually it compelled him, to love from the center of that realized divine identity that he came out of the water with. I'm a child of God, and so are you. His message was that every person, that's you and me, and the person you're married to, as unlikely as that seems to you, has the capacity to be divine, holy, and sacred. Carl Jung's teaching, and this is why I've been so attracted to him, is that God is seeking fulfillment in human life. 
as human life seeks fulfillment in God. So that Augustine was right when he said, our hearts are restless until they rest in God. Now, what I'm about to say may be like a splash of cold water in your face. Or it may be daunting for you to jump into, but without God, we don't really exist. We stand on the dock, fearful, longing. And without us, God is an abstraction. We're here on this thing called earth, evolved to the place that we are because we are, as far as we know, the only thinking portion of the universe. We are part of a cosmic wholeness that's grounded in sacred reality, living in the sacred stream. But we have to be aware and conscious of that. So what the stream of consciousness is really calling for us is that we be willing to be involved in this new identity as prophets and mystics. People who dream from a deeper center and who live and love from an untapped spring of life. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious, precious cargo, so watch your step and come back, register on the website, please, and come back here and fix lunches with me next Sunday. See you then. <clears throat>